0: And the baby's doing fantastic. And so <clears throat> we appreciate everyone's prayers and everyone's uh, just interest in how things are going. And Sinead's doing really well. They, uh, Luke and Sinead, they turn out some pretty beautiful babies. <laughs> so we're, we're uh, pretty proud, pretty happy. Well, let's pray before we go into our sermon this morning father we do thank you for your grace and kindness and love to us we do thank you for uh, this birth that you've uh, helped us with and guarded and then lord we do thank you for world down syndrome day and that um, lord we appreciate those that we know who have down syndrome and Appreciate Carmen and our congregation and our family. And pray your special blessing upon her today. And then, Lord, that you would help us as we look into your word to have a deep understanding of it so that we can walk by it and that we can uh, just relate with others through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've been following Jesus as he moves closer to the cross and it's according to the Father's timetable. That's what we see throughout the the passages is that it's according to God's timetable. And Jesus has dedicated his earthly ministry to teaching the people the truth about God and the truth about the kingdom of God and what things are, you know, held up are valued in the kingdom of God mostly in contrast to the kingdom of man or the kingdom of the earth and a lot of that teaching is because they had not been receiving very good teaching about who God is and what his kingdom is all about from the top religious leaders but you know during that time he has also focused heavily on his disciples training his disciples because they would become part of the foundation for the church that would spread across the whole world throughout the whole age until it's time for the kingdom. So here we are coming now to the end of Jesus' earthly life, and he's spending some very crucial time with his disciples, his last time with his disciples, his last Passover celebration with his disciples, and he said this is the one that he's really been looking forward to because the next time he celebrates this meal, it will be the fulfillment of all the Passovers. It will be in the kingdom of God. It will be the great banquet. And he's celebrating this last Passover before he returns to the Father. And during this Passover meal, and we're going to be looking at this Actually, Brian is going to uh, kind of explain the cedar meal to us next week before we take the Lord's Supper. And during this last Passover meal, he basically institutes the Lord's Supper, which now we celebrate because he says to do it in memory of him. And during that Passover meal, he takes some of the bread, and it says he breaks it, and he says, take this and eat of it, all of you, This is my body given for you. Do this in memory of me. And then he takes the cup. They had four cups that they used. And it doesn't say which cup he takes, but most people think he takes the cup of of redemption. And he, because it says they'd already eaten. And he takes that cup and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, my guess is that when he said, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood poured out for you, the disciples probably were a little bit confused by that. And then he tells them that one of them sitting there will be the one who betrays him, the one who gives him over to his enemies. And he says that that betrayal has been decreed by God. It has to happen. But he said, Woe to the person who betrays the Son of Man. So, God has set the plan, but people make their own choices within that plan. And then it says, at some point, as they were going all through this and spending this evening together before they would go out to the garden, the subject came up about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And really, when you're talking about kingdoms, you're talking about positions and authority. And so, who would sit at Jesus' right hand? Who would sit at Jesus' left hand? Who would have the most authority? Who would be served the most? And then Jesus tells them that that's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not the uh, values of the kingdom of heaven. That's what the kingdom of earth, that's what people look for, is how many people serve them. But he said, I came, and he was the eternal son of God, came not to be served, but to serve. So he was telling them the kingdom of heaven values are who serves the most, who is the willing servant, who's willing to help others. And then, well, he says, that's, that's kingdom of heaven greatness. How willing are you to help others who need help? Then he tells his disciples what will really lead to great reward. What will lead them to even greater reward. And it's in verses 28 through 30. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials... And I confer on you, bestow on you, a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, you know, he already said that kingdom values, greatness in the kingdom comes from serving others by becoming a humble servant. But now he's telling his disciples that they will receive special honor because they stayed with him during the hard times. Of course, they had hard times coming up you know, in the future, but up until then, they stayed with him during the hard times. They remained faithful during difficult times. You know, as the Jewish leaders were trying to tear him down and turned against him, and they tried to turn others against him, And they repeatedly attacked him and spoke evil of him. They threatened people if they followed him or if they said his name. They would be kicked out of the temple or or the synagogue, whatever was the case. And so it would have been tempting for the disciples to say, "I'm, I'm lining up against my whole culture here by following him. And I'm sure a lot of people outside of the disciples did say that and decided not to follow him because the pressure was probably pretty great. Jesus is saying, you stayed with me and now you will receive great rewards. And he's talking about eating at the king's table, sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And you know that's pretty hard for us to appreciate probably because we're not in a kingdom setting, are we? I mean, we left the kingdom setting as americans and we we established a government where there was absolutely going to be no king in fact george washington was offered somebody suggested to him why don't you just be voted as king he goes that's not what we came here for so we have a hard time understanding kingdoms and authority in kingdoms and privilege in the kingdom But what we can learn is those who stand with Christ and stay true to him, especially in times where it would be so much easier to distance ourselves and win the popularity of the crowd, you know, faithfulness to Christ, especially in times when Christ is attacked and looked down upon or or Christ's uh, values are, that brings Great reward and honor in the kingdom of God. And you know, when you think about it, rewards in the future in the kingdom of God and the eternal kingdom where Christ will rule on the new earth, it's going to be so much more fulfilling than any pleasures we get in this life. And that's why Jesus says to store our treasures in heaven. You know, once we take our treasures and we maybe forego something here and put our treasures in heaven, their value skyrockets, and they're for eternity. So Jesus is trying to get us to become rich with kingdom treasures. So he tells his disciples that they are, by following him, being true to him, investing in a glorious eternal future by remaining faithful to him. But, they're not there yet, are they? There's more to come before the eternal kingdom comes. And in verses 31 through 34, we have that stark realization here. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. <clears throat> Satan has asked God permission to put the disciples under very, very severe testing. Kind of reminds you of the book of Job, where Satan challenges God to let him have wax at Job. And sifting wheat, you know, how they used to sift wheat, they would get in a place, kind of on a hill or something, where the wind was going by, and they'd throw the wheat up in the air, And then the wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away because the chaff had no substance to it. It was just a little thin covering. And so when he talks about sifting the disciples as wheat, he's talking about putting them under the test to show their true character. Will they really stay with you? Will they really, you know, just like Job, doesn't he just serve you because of what you give him? And so it shows... What is true faithfulness? It shows what is true faith as opposed to what is just talk. It is, is pressure meant to expose weakness or phoniness. But Jesus tells Peter that he has prayed for him so that his faith would not fail. Peter, I've prayed for you so that your faith would not fail and when you turn back, Strengthen your brothers. But then he also tells him when Peter says, Hey, I'll never turn back, I'll never turn away from you. He says, Well, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. So, when Jesus says he prays Peter's faith will not fail, he must not be talking about his denial. Because he's already told him after his denial to turn back and strengthen his brothers. What, what Jesus is saying is he's praying that Peter won't completely just give it up. Just walk away. That he won't do what Judas had done. Judas at some point decided, not for me. So actually Peter's denial was more a failure of nerves during a difficult trial it wasn't Peter abandoning the faith it wasn't him saying no I don't believe in Jesus anymore I don't think anything he said is true we see that happening today with some Christian leaders it wasn't Peter saying I'm gonna make a clean break Judas did that but Peter his faith was still there. He just slipped up. And Jesus says, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus has told his disciples that kingdom of heaven greatness comes through humble servitude, through being willing to help others who are in need. And special rewards come from standing with Christ during difficult times. You can think of you know, the martyrs today and all throughout Christian history. Those who stood and stayed true to Christ during difficult times and how they will be rewarded in special ways. And then we also know that we have an enemy who wants us to fail. And that is the reason, as we saw in Second Peter, as we saw Peter talking to the believers he was over that is the reason in our daily lives we have to really live into our Christian faith. We have to come to know God better through the word and prayer our faith. Add to our faith, goodness, knowledge, uh, self-control, perseverance. And that is the reason we also have to just Avoid things that will just draw us away from our faith. Whatever it is in each person's life, if anything gets in the way of our devotion to Christ, whether it's a person, whether it's an activity, whether it's a place, whether it's a show, we watch, you know, whatever, a book, if anything starts drawing us away from Christ, then we just have to use self-control in that area So that we stay close to Christ. And so these are the things that Jesus is teaching his people, his disciples. And now he is ready to take his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is it. The time has come. And this is what Jesus has been, of course, in a sense dreading. But knowing that it has to come. And he knows that Judas has already gone out to betray him to his enemies. In fact, in another gospel account, as they're eating the meal, and they're asking, well, who is it that's going to betray you? And he tells Judas, go do what you're going to do. So Jesus knows all that's going on. He knows that Judas is out to get you know, people to come and arrest him. And so now they're getting ready to leave that, that room where nobody knew where they were because Jesus didn't let it be known. And then going into the garden, which used to be a place of seclusion, but now it's going to be a place where the enemy comes to capture him. And I want you to read uh, look with me at 35 through 38 on this. Then Jesus asked them, and this, they're still in the upper room here, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He's referring back to a time when they when he sent them out into the the people of Israel, and they were going just house to house in villages and towns, telling them that the Messiah was here. And he told them, Don't take anything extra, because the people you're going to, they'll help you. Don't take any food. Don't take any extra money for food. Let the people feed you. And when you're finished in one place, just go to another. And so it was all kind of like um, speaking to a friendly audience in a sense. This time he says, he says, you lack nothing, right? And they, they said, right. Then he says, he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's talking about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. They just already had swords. That's enough, he said, he replied. What Jesus is basically saying here, these, these are his last words before they head out. And what he's basically saying here is that from now on, things are going to be much different. It's going to be much harder out there than to carry the message of the Messiah, Because the tide has turned against Jesus. Much of that is due to the Jewish religious leaders. You know, the crowds were flocking to him. But all along the way, the Jewish religious leaders were trying to turn people against him. And the Jewish religious leaders, if you think you see political animals now, they were political animals. They were out for power and control. And isn't that the way it always works? And Jesus was a threat to them. When he came and taught, he taught the true truths of God, and they were exactly against what the the religious leaders were doing. So instead of the religious leaders, you know, considering what Jesus had been teaching, that no man had ever taught like that before, that the people were just, it was like drinking water in a thirsty land, Instead of the religious leaders thinking that through, and instead of them considering that he's performing miracles, more miracles than any of the prophets did, Elisha, Elijah. I mean, he was just performing miracles right and left, healing people. And instead of thinking, this guy matches the prophecies in the Old Testament, or in our Bible, in our Testament about the Messiah, So just like corrupt politicians who are used to having power and control and not at all willing to relinquish any of that, they plot his demise. And they promote the message that this guy is evil. And that he teaches against the law of Moses. And that he's a blasphemer and they work really hard to turn people against him. So that's what's happening here. Jesus says, "Now when you go out, it's going to be different than it was the first time." And then this thing about two swords. And the reason I just stop here is because you know we have stuff going on in our culture about weapons and <clears throat> But Jesus tells them, He's saying, make sure you have a sword. Sell your cloak if you have to. So he's saying, you know, sell the thing that you would use the most in order to have a sword. So does Jesus want his followers to use weapons against those who try to stop them or threaten them or arrest them? Well, I'm sure he doesn't want us to use weapons in order to try to get people to turn to the Lord, right? And I don't believe he is telling them to use violence against those who would persecute them for their faith. He said, blessed are those who persecute you. Or, blessed are you who are persecuted. (laughs) I believe in this instance, the sword is used as a metaphor warning his disciples that they are entering dangerous territory as his followers. And I think swords were just something... See, they had two swords. I think swords were something that they used to protect themselves as they were going on a journey because of robbers, animals, you know, vicious animals that they ran into. So I think what he's saying basically is You better strap on your sword, for you're going to go into a battle zone. I don't believe weapons will be a part of our spreading the gospel. But, at the same time, I also don't believe that the Bible prohibits the use of weapons to protect your family, or someone's breaking into your home, or trying to kidnap your child, or hurt your wife, or some such threat. I don't believe Jesus is really making any kind of statement as far as, you know, gun control laws or anything like that. I just think people carried swords when they went out to places where they could run into some danger. Anyway, that's just because we're dealing with that in our culture right now. But now they're ready to enter a very, very dangerous place. And not only physically dangerous... But even more so, spiritually dangerous. And so, follow with me as I read 39 through 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, If you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. You know, first of all, it talks about Jesus going out to his usual place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, He knows that Judas has gone out and that Judas knows where they're going after they leave the room. In fact, you know, in another gospel account, I said that he tells Judas, go ahead and do what you're going to do. Now, really, what he could have done, he could have gone to a different place and Judas would have just been leading people to this empty part of the garden. But... Jesus willingly, knowingly went out to the very place where he knew he would be captured, arrested, and led into his beatings and death. So he was really going there, offering his body willingly to be the living sacrifice for the sins of the world. And this would be mankind's only hope only hope of spending eternity with God. Now, you know, I've heard people outside the church <clears throat> when they kind of look at this this whole scenario of Jesus and his time on earth and they'll say something like, you know, Jesus was this unfortunate victim of just horrible circumstances. You know, he lived doing good for others but just happened to get on the wrong side of the powerful crowd. The powerful people but that doesn't even come close to the truth does it I mean we see all through this how God is orchestrating everything and it's moving toward this most amazing uh, event that the Son of God would die for the sins of the world and Jesus knowingly and willingly hands himself over to evil men so that we could be forgiven and you know, he knew it was going to be just horrible, horrible suffering, didn't he? <clears throat> I mean, he was, in the, he was praying and he was suffering intense agony during his prayer, knowing that this intense, immense physical pain was coming. But probably even worse, knowing that this sinless Son of God, eternal Son of God would actually become sin for us. And that his Father, who, you know, they had this total love relationship between them, that his Father would unleash his full wrath on Jesus Christ to pay for all the sins throughout human history. And for anyone that comes to Christ, faith in him... Their sins are forgiven. And so Jesus is facing this. Jesus who was forever eternally obedient and loving to his Father and holy. He was now ready to receive his Father's wrath. The full wrath of God unleashed on Jesus Christ. And if you think about it. If you think about what happened as he was being led to the cross. I mean, before that, the trials he went through, the beatings he took. I don't know that any other person has ever suffered that much. But it was for the the sins of all mankind. And then there's this aspect of prayer there in the garden. You know, in this account, two times he tells his disciples to pray so you don't fall into temptation. But they keep falling asleep, don't they? And so, I'm not condemning them in a, so much, but in his greatest hour of need, his closest friends just scatter out of fear. And they leave him to face the mob. Now, would they have been able to stay... If they had stayed awake and had been able to pray all that time like Jesus did? I don't know. But I know that He greatly desired that they do stay awake and pray in order not to fall into temptation. Now, this tells me that when we face temptation, we should pray. First and foremost. Now I'm guessing that some of you already have that practice down. You face pressure and you pray. But you know, I'm not certain that I always think of prayer in times of temptation. You know, when you're ready to fly off the handle. Do you think of prayer? (laughs) Maybe it's the Christian way of counting to ten, you know. But you know... The thing is, when Jesus prayed, of course, he was under such intense suffering and anxiety, you know, sweating like drops of blood. But when he prayed, he did receive special help from God. It says that God sent an angel to strengthen him. Now, I'm not saying that's always going to happen, but I think the principle is there if we pray in times of pressure, if we pray in times of temptation, instead of just trying to be, you know, white-knuckle it, we can take this cue from Jesus. and, And maybe we can even make it an automatic response if we get used to it. Praying in times of temptation and receiving God's help through the Spirit or whatever. So when tempted, pray. When pressured, pray before answering back. Even if you got something really clever to say, pray first. Bring God into our reactions and receive strength from God. Now, I want, want to finish this morning <clears throat> with the arrival of the mod, Mob, mob. 47 through 53, it says, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. You notice, uh, we know from another gospel account, that's Peter, right? Whereas the others asked, he just did it, right? But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. In another account, At this point, Jesus says, don't you know I could bring 12 legions of angels down here to stop this? But how would we fulfill the scriptures? So he's always into fulfilling the scriptures. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. So here comes Judas leading a mob with clubs and swords. And you know, it must have been a sizable mob because it had three different groups of people, three different groups of Jewish leaders in it. It had the elders, chief priests, and temple guards. It seems like they weren't going to take any chances. They were going to get him no matter what because they haven't been able to do it. Now finally this is their chance and they're going to make this arrest successful. And then Judas uses a friendship greeting to make sure the mob knows which one to grab. And everything about Judas and what he's doing, all of his actions were really so despicable, so disgusting, and so traitorous, which I'm sure made it that much more painful for Jesus to endure, you know, to give over so much to this one person as one of the twelve, and then for him to act so despicable. But then Jesus, what he says to the Jewish leaders here is very important. He says... You're coming at me as if I was this violent criminal. You're acting as if I'm leading a rebellion. You have all these weapons, all these people, all, uh, everything you're, ga- you're gaining against me. What for? I taught in the temple every day, speaking freely. You heard everything I was saying. If I said anything against God, against the scriptures, against the, the Jewish state... He said, you could have arrested me then. What he's saying basically is, what you're doing, you have no good reason to do. I'm going to let you do it, but you are wrong in doing it. And you have no reason. You have nothing to charge me with. So everything you're doing, you're doing against the will of God. He's proving his innocence and at the same time proving their corruption. But here's the true reason behind their actions. The last sentence. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And really that says a lot. Because again... All through the passage, all through the Bible, you know we have God who is coordinating everything. And he uses evil in his plan to bring about the greatest good. But these people are ones who have devised evil. God didn't put evil in them. They decided to go down that pathway. They had every chance to go down the other pathway that others did. But they chose the evil pathway. And he says... In God's timetable, this is the hour of darkness. The time that darkness reigns. This is your hour. So he was really condemning them as they were moving forward. So we have Jesus facing this excruciating trial. Willing to go undergo the unimaginable. So that we could receive forgiveness for our sins. Through his unjust and totally undeserved punishment. I mean, just think of that. The pure, sinless, eternal Son of God. Always obedient to the Father. Always with pure love. And he gets punished for all of our sins. And just think of how easy it is for us to get so upset when we face the slightest injustice. I think this truly reveals the depth of God's love for humanity. I mean, He just loves us so much. And you know, of course, Christ also, who was willing to come down and when Christ is seated on his throne in the kingdom i think we'll understand this so much better so much more so much deeper and really there will be no amount of honor and praise and glory that we could give Christ that would just that would just match what he's done i mean it will be eternal that we will praise him and glorify him for what he's done and in this also we learn that true kingdom greatness comes from humble servitude and special kingdom rewards come from faithfulness to God in difficult times and that prayer is our weapon in the midst of temptation and really you know it's easy to get so caught up in trying to achieve everything in this life trying to gain all that we can and achieve every goal that we set and there's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve goals but it's really easy to lose sight of our eternal future too i think you know it's it's so natural and easy for us to get caught up into living by sight and not by faith i think it takes a lot of spiritual insight and discipline to live by faith that's why we just have to be in the scriptures all the time it just brings us back to what is really true and we look out onto the world and just get so into the world we lose sight of what's really true sometimes but again that is where time and God's word becomes so important so let's continue to pray that we don't fall into temptation And let's become so heavenly minded that we also become very earthly good. Let's pray.